Okay, well, welcome everyone. Welcome to Zero Emissions Podcast. Um, we're joined today by Lisa Pasquale and myself, Duncan Smith, Jeff Coley, Dan and Alex. Um, Lisa, it's great to have you here. We've been talking about you here for, for quite some time now. Can you give us a wee bit of background about yourself? Tell us what you've been doing. You're an engineer, you're a past 2035 retrofit coordinator. Can you give us a bit about your background and tell us your experience, I suppose, within past projects over the last year or so? Okay, so um, yeah, I've, I've got a bit of an uh, unusual background. So I was trained as an architect um, in the US, um, but took a very kind of technical approach to um, to kind of design as to how, how buildings actually physically need to go together. Um, so I was really more the kind of pragmatic type architect um, and worked on construction sites for maybe three, four years, um, and then came over to London to do a master's in building physics. Um, so that was really focusing on how to make buildings fundamentally just demand less energy. Um, so how to balance the sort of um, various passive elements to make sure that you're containing heat, you're ventilating efficiently, um, and that you're doing as much as you can with the fabric and the kind of form of the building as humanly possible. Um, and I ended up getting into doing forensics and going in to pick apart low energy buildings um, after they'd been finished and figuring out what had gone wrong, because what was happening at the time, um, this was kind of the early days of Briam and Lead kind of becoming to the forefront of the profession. Um, is there were lots of buildings that had lots of green credentials, um, but when you actually looked at the energy performance, you looked at the comfort, you looked at how well are these things actually doing, um, a lot of them were absolutely atrocious. Um, is there were there were some green buildings that were had higher energy use than a standard building. Um, there was actually quite a lot of them. Um, so I got really good at forensics and going back and picking apart what what was going wrong. Um, and my specialty kind of became developing systems to bridge some of the gaps that were occurring in delivery and design and, um, and approaches to kind of delivering buildings um, to start making, making it such that the industry was capable of mm -hmm. delivering the kind of the low carbon, zero carbon agenda. Um, and then I got kind of called into a very big retrofit um to do a forensic kind of analysis of that um and i went on site of this you know 200 odd house retrofit um well, it wasn't uh, in the northwest by any chance was it lisa it was not in the northwest uh, but it was okay. it was the same it was the same bit of funding uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> this one was in the southeast uh. <laughs> um and was walking around on site when it was kind of three quarters of the way finished um and I kind of kind of more or less turned to the client and said, um, I, I really hate to point this out, but these buildings aren't watertight anymore. Um, and and it was like that was it was the most heart wrenching renting project I've ever looked at um, in terms of just watching it catastrophically fail, um, being completely powerless to fix it because it was just way too down, way too far down the line. Um and then having to write a report on why they should not have done what they did, um, which was not at all what we were kind of set out to do. Um, so I started up my own consultancy after I kind of came out of that project, um, specifically looking at building performance, looking at um, managing risks in low energy projects. Um, and I got approached by Greater London Authority um, and their team. And they said, uh, they said, oh, we'd like you to do some forensics on the retrofits we're supporting. Um, I was I was literally so traumatized by the previous project. I said, please God, don't I won't do that unless you let me de-risk these projects first. I said, let me go in and fix what I know I can fix before you turn them out so that you know they they actually have a, a fighting chance of actually working. Um and and the response that came back was, well, we never thought of looking at technical risk before. <laughs> And and I said, well, I guess that's that's more or less uh, define the scope of my of my firm. <laughs> that um, tells you a lot about the economics yeah. of the whole yeah. industry as well. Yeah, that, that's baffling that that's even that someone could even have the gall to say such a thing out loud. Yes, <laughs> not even keep it to themselves. <laughs> yeah. 
I was like, I was like, well, I guess, I guess I've found my USP. So. <laughs> so, so was was there was there just um, was that through lack of technical understanding at the client's senior senior level? Was that was that no, or was that? I, to be honest, I think it was a bit of. I really do think it was a bit of the lack of understanding on the on the whole industry level as to what is required to actually deliver high performance buildings. Um, it, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't just one or two people that were, were a bit daft. It is just they don't understand the detail that's required to actually make things fundamentally work properly. Um, and that's one thing that I kind of learned in the in the sort of building physics, you know, master's program is yeah. little tiny holes in, in, in houses can actually cause catastrophic problems. Yeah. And in a big construction site, it's very easy to end up with lots of holes, let yeah. alone little teeny tiny ones that you have to keep track of. Um, yeah. And that level of kind of managing construction is just not something that we've really done very well or, no. or or much at all. I mean, at the time, we'd only had half a dozen passive houses built in the UK. Like it was it was very early doors when they approached me. Yeah. So, and we, st- we, still, we still don't probably, Jeff makes this point regularly, we still don't assess what we build certainly um we don't assess what we retrofit to the degree that we should so you know that field that you were involved in the last five years was 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 pretty niche um Mm -hmm. the 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 question i suppose i wanted to ask was do you think there's an over-reliance on the industry on things like bbas on building warrants that um you know look we'll get it right because these products are approved it's what everyone uses yeah um yeah i do and i do i'm very critical of the BBA at the moment, um, primarily because I have just come across far too many products that have a BBA certificate. Um, and they say quite clearly on the BBA what they are approved, what kinds of buildings they're approved to go on to. Um, and there was there was a particular one um it had a plastic plastic vapor barrier um, and it was approved to go on traditional solid wall construction. And I and I just said no, that's that's not how those buildings work. Um, and and kind of the the frustration of it, like when I went and talked to the system designer and the manufacturer, and I said, I said, I said, if you you know if you had a gun to my head, I wouldn't put your system on a solid wall property. I said, how the heck did you guys get a BBA certificate for this? And the response was, well, we wanted it to cover all scenarios. <laughs> and I just said. Sorry, what? I said this is not this is not a marketing document. I'm like yeah. this is this is a technical data sheet on the on the ability of your system to work. Yeah. Um, and that's what they get used for is they seem to get used as marketing tools. And it's like no, this is not what they are there for. Mm. Um, so the fact that I could just look at a system and say that's not appropriate for that type of building, but somehow the BBA is given it a certificate, like. It just blows my mind um, how that's gotten through. Yeah, that sounds like the flaw in the the fabric first principle that you were banging on about on Monday on LinkedIn, Duncan, or Sunday on your day off, <laughs> a day of rest. Broke my rules, Jeff. Broke my rules. Like, you were incensed. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. If you can get away with that sort of work, like that sort of lack of thought, yeah. thoroughness, you yeah. know, lack of care. Yeah. Like, yeah, I can remember um, many years ago, uh, we published in the magazine um, a piece. It was a series of articles by an architect called Joseph Little um, in our magazine called, under the, the very bad pun, Breaking the Mold, um, um, on problems with internal insulation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, basically, a number of years ago, um, the architect Joseph Little uh, ran a series of articles in our magazine uh, under the very bad pun, Breaking the Mold. And it was about interstitial condensation risk in among other issues uh, with uh, internal insulation to uh, to single leaf walls um and um one of the articles uh joseph also looked at external insulation and he took an irish agreement start just to be an equal uh opportunity offender or stander or whatever um uh for uh, an external insulation system and basically tore it to shreds uh, because they had a detail for instance this is an early retrofit uh, cert, um, uh, cert specifically for for application to existing buildings, and the insulation was there was a detail for bringing the insulation up to the bottom of the um, existing concrete cell and just finishing it there, 
Um, and Joseph uh, showed showed that there'd be a significant uh, interstitial condensation and uh, and a, and a thermal bridging problem caused by this. And I remember a blazing row we got into with um, with the relevant person in the in the argument board about this with you know with an email with uh, as far as I can recall uh, uh, letters all in uppercase and in red and with five exclamation marks afterwards that kind of stuff you know. Um, <laughs> Just, just the the audacity of us for 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 challenging this, and for, yeah. it was it was a nervous one to publish. I have to say, you know, it, it's yeah. nerve wracking one to publish this kind of stuff, and uh, you have to be careful about this kind of stuff. Um, but it, these look, it's critical that these issues that these issues are addressed. And building physics, I mean, around about the same time, I was in a meeting with the, the most probably the most senior architect in the state in terms of a, a, a public architect in a public body. And I mentioned the term building physics and this guy was close to retirement at the time. Nice kind of uh, genial collegiate fella. Um, and uh, he looked at me, um, did a double take and he said, you know, building physics, that's a term I haven't heard since I was at college. And oh. <laughs> 40 what? odd years, you know, in practice. Um, yeah. Um, and somebody like me who didn't really even know what I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> you did English, Jeff. <laughs> but it's it's amazing. And the question I have for you, Lisa, um, uh, is any of this information on any of these kind of catastrophic failures, does any of it see the light of day? Is it possible to get access to any of this? Because it would be amazing to, uh, as a learning resource. Yeah, so some of it does. Um, so there are some published articles on some of the some of the bigger failures. Um there, there has been, I would say, at least a couple of projects where I don't know how it's not gotten into the public realm. Um, uh, I do know the one that I worked on um, as as doing the forensics. I do know that went to court. I have no idea what happened after that, but I assume it it settled out. Um, so yeah, I do know that they do they do go legal, um, and when they go legal, it's it's quite easy to then wrap it all up in a yeah. in a package that then means it doesn't see the light of day. Yeah. Um, and I think to, to some extent that's a it's a disservice that these things are happening, being handled through the civil courts, when in in my opinion, this is very much this is a more of a societal kind of industry level problem. This is this isn't individual contractors that are screwing yeah. up. This is the entire industry lacking the infrastructure to deliver things competently. Um, and yet it shouldn't be swept under the table like this. Um, so in a way, I mean, I read a lot of the transcripts of the, the Grenfell inquiry last uh, about a year ago when, when some of the big testimony was coming out. Um, and that was absolutely heartbreaking to hear some of the stuff that was that had happened. Um, everything from slipping additional material into the fire tests um you know taking the best values out of various tests and publishing those um there was a lot of just horrific outrageous practice yeah Yeah. and and i'm just sitting there going okay you know we're holding this one project up as an example the fact of the matter is i have no doubt there's at least a dozen other manufacturers that have done the exact same thing, uh, like, and they just haven't been caught yet. Mm. Um, and that's that's the thing that really just irks me is knowing that it's it's very rare that we manage to air these things in a manner that enables us to fix it. Um, because yeah, when it gets handled through private court for through civil court. We, we have no opportunity to then take that learning and fix the structural yeah. things they, that went wrong. They settle out of court because it's in no one's interest for, for yeah. the information to be to be shared, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, um, well, not no one. No, but no, no one, no, it's neither. It's obviously in someone's interest. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's a fair point, but but uh, it's certainly not in the interest of the of the defendant or whatever the plaintiff. And and um, you know, you don't the the person who's got the complaints doesn't want their property devalued anymore. 
uh, or the stigma of it uh, of associated if it's not in the public domain. And obviously the manufacturer doesn't, but yes, good Lisa, point. Lisa makes a good point. Lisa makes a good point about, you know, so Alex nodding away. It's like, you know, it's a societal issue. It's something we should be aware of. It's how do we change things if we don't understand how they failed in the first place? I want, I want to ask a question, Lisa, but you're right, Dan. I I, I did. A, I, I posted an angry man. Uh, I didn't go capitals, but I nearly did uh, in terms <laughs> of uh, LinkedIn. But w- one of the things that, that, that irks me is the language of retrofit has, I think, is being stolen by those who aren't doing retrofit particularly. I know retrofits, we keep on coming back to retrofit, it's not a good name, but Fabric First, now I see people talk about Fabric First and they don't know what that really means from a building physics perspective. And the reason I posted that stuff on LinkedIn is to say, these are the people talking about Fabric First and that's what it actually looks like through a thermal camera. So that was that was my shouting into the void. But Lisa, you know, you talked about large-scale failure there. One of the things I wanted to kind of bring it back to was past 2035 really was a response to each home count as the Bonfield report, wasn't it? Um, we had Peter Rickey be on here, one of the authors of Past 2035. So those those large scale failures you, you saw back, you know, the last few years or so, Past 2035 really was born from those failures, wasn't it? That's really one of the reasons why that process was put in place as to how we uh, address risk. Well, well, you've, you've been working on projects now as a coordinator. You've been working, you know, on, on, on sites and retrofit projects. Is, is PAS working? Um. So let me explain a little bit the history of the PAS. Um, So Peter and I actually developed the process largely together um, for GLA. So for that client that kind of approached me and said, you know, can you do forensics? Um, And and so we initially started the risk assessment process, um, the oversight, the checking, the integrating ventilation requirements, all that stuff was the the early process was what we were trialing with GLA to get this kind of wedged into the projects. Um, and it was a very different approach. It was, it was hard for some of the, the local authorities to take on board um, because we were saying, oh, we need to insulate these houses, but by the way, we need to also add fans. Um, and that was like even just explaining to residents why we have to poke holes in buildings in order to, to then put the fabric, you know, right, was, was hard to communicate. Um, and then they were, you know, struggling with the costs of the fans. Well, oh, it's £700. Well, yes, but it saves us from, you know, basically filling the houses with mould accidentally. Um, and so it was, it was a big kind of sh- trying to shift the culture away from we just whack insulation onto buildings and we walk away um, and saying, well, no, we need to look at this as to whether or not these are going to be fit for purpose, you know, 10 years down the line. Um, so, so that's where the, the process came from. Um, and then the Bonfield report case started um, and we presented that process as part of the initial Peter's initial Peter Bonfield's initial kind of research into best practice is we presented the risk matrix and the process that we were using at GLA. Um, and that's like basically got taken forward into that that review and into that kind of the outcomes that came out of it. Um, but in the meantime, it got kind of chewed through a very complex consultation process and the steering group and politicized and turned into something that, that we have to we have to do from a compliance standpoint, which was very different to the to the way that we initially originally envisaged it. Um, and I would say it definitely took a little bit of a beating going through that process. <laughs> um, from the, the joys of stakeholder point. engagements, yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, but so there were there were certain elements that have come through that were positive that were definitely positive, um, where the PAS is helping. Um what I think the main issue we're finding, like in trying to implement it, is in a way, uh my my original system was very simple. Um it was very simple, but it was also very simple because it was just me. Um, and I was I was the one executing it. Um, it becomes a very different entity when you have to scale it up to a whole industry. Um, and that's where it starts getting compl- complicated is looking at, well, this house is going to be different and that situation is going to be different. And oh, we can't require a different thing for this than we do for that. And so things become, uh, it becomes a more blanket approach um, than, than what we'd originally kind of intended. Um, and this is where we've we've been struggling quite a bit with it um, is because we are finding situations where in order to meet compliance, we're having to do things 
that actually aren't really what we think we should be doing. Um, and that's now that's now coming to the forefront that um, there's a difference between a person acting in order to comply with the standard and a person that is acting competently off the back of their professional experience, their training, their integrity. Uh, those are two very different things. Mm. Um, so, Can I mean, you give some examples, Lisa, some practical examples of that? Yeah, so an example of that, and this was when we got into it, I got into a proper row about two weeks, two weeks ago about, um, is according to the standard, we have to have a fully compliant ventilation system in any house where we upgrade the insulation or the air tightness. Um, and the intent behind that was when we're doing whole house retrofits, yes, we need a full compliant ventilation system. Yeah. Um where it's been misapplied is it's now the standard is being tacked on to, to houses which are only getting very minimal upgrades. So they're getting a door replaced, they're getting a couple of windows replaced, they're getting secondary glazing on their front five windows, but not the rest of the house. Um, they're getting very kind of minimal fabric improvements. Um, but this is under the guise of quote unquote retrofit. Um, in my mind, that's not retrofit, that's maintenance. You're you're keeping a house from being intolerably in uncomfortable and uninhabitable um so in my mind this is being applied in the wrong context it's being applied to single measure stuff um and of course in order to give this 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 poor households uh, a few poor households but a, a single woman that was living on her own um secondary glazing on five windows we were going to have to punch holes in every bedroom and living room to have ventilation intakes and I, I and basically she had no other insulation on the property. It was solid wall. It was suspended timber floor, which was uninsulated. She had a bit of loft insulation. That was about it. And I said, like, the, the house is just unbelievably drafty. I'm like, there's there's chimneys that are open. Um, I said, at the very least, we can close up our chimneys. But I, there's just, like, if I put a fan pressurization test on that house, I wouldn't even be able to get it up to 50 Pascal. Um, but uh, to, in order to meet the letter of the standard, I have to supply background ventilation intakes, background ventilators. That's the, the phrase that's used. Um, and I kind of turned to Trustmark and said, can I not just demonstrate that there is a adequate background ventilation? I don't need background ventilators. I said, the entire house is a ventilator. It's full of holes. <laughs> that's why she needs the secondary glazing. Mm. Um and they said, they said, well, no, you know, it, it has to meet the letter of the standard. They said, you know, because this is the way it's done. And I said, look, I'm, yeah. I'm a chartered engineer. Yeah. I can I can put a blower door on a house and I will sit in a testimony box and say, I didn't comply to that standard because it was to the detriment of that householder. Um, and the fact of the matter is under the standard, I can't do that. Um, and that's where I like personally, I'm getting quite frustrated with it is knowing where we definitely shouldn't be doing certain things, um, which is it's asking us to comply with that. And I'm trying to kind of bring it back to the fact that this was not the intent of the standard. Standard wasn't supposed to address these little single measures. Um, it was supposed to be where we're insulating half the house at least, where we're, we're doing substantial improvements to the fabric. And that will fundamentally change the level of air tightness, the level of infil infiltration, the, the type of air quality that you have in the house. That's when you need the ventilation. Um, and yeah, it was just never envisaged that this would be tacked on to upgrading people's front doors. Like yeah. that's that's not what it's a very, what it's a very good point. For. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, does past twenty thirty five make assumptions around what the uh what the air tightness levels are because um it pre-retrofit pre because i know that in ireland um with the, the code of practice for retrofit um that the nsai produced um, several years ago does um well implicitly it does because it basically tells you that you should only consider putting in a mechanical ventilation system if you think that the air tightness measures are likely to have brought the house up to advanced air tightness levels, which is described as like a Q50 of less than five cubic meters per meter square per hour. Yeah. And we know for a fact um, that from the relatively limited amount of data that exists on uh, air tightness results of the existing stock pre-retrofit in Ireland, yeah. that actually there's a good chunk of stock in Ireland um, that's under five mm -hmm. without anything being done to it, you know? 
Um, so, uh, you know, in, in other words, uh, that that's one thing that does trouble me is there, there's an assumption, and I see it in academic papers, I see it all over the place, that uh, that existing stock is inherently leaky, and yeah. uh, and therefore that it's that it's we only need to start thinking about ventilation if we're um, if we're uh, doing this shiny new thing of of improving buildings, you know, um, and that 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 just that troubles me, um, and uh, and uh, you know, again, this is because we're not asking questions about the conditions that people are living in you know yeah and i think i mean that's a really valid point and this is this is one of the things that we've kind of struggled with is how to phrase a phrase a standard and phrase a process such that we efficiently address the the property at hand and we don't have like an excess excessive process in order to improve and manage the internal environment. Um, so actually um, the as it insulation was the IAA, what's that one stand for? Insulation. Inca? Is it not? Is that no, insulation association something authority. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so basically there's there's a body that represents the insulation industry um, who finally got actually quite quite fed up with NXT um, and the fact that we, we we're just struggling as an industry to meet it. Um, and they actually did develop a really good process um, that specifically focused on testing. Um, and so it takes, um, basically you, you do an air pressure at the test of the house to begin with and say, right, it's X leaky. Um, and you get the, the results. Um, that then informs the level of um, ventilation um yeah the insulation assurance authority that's the one <laughs> um that that then informs the the level of ventilation that you need to bring the house up to a reasonable level of compliance that is along sits alongside the level of air tightness you're likely to get from the measures that you're putting in um and so we know that basically on average this is what part f um the new part f assumes on average, kind of traditional properties in the UK have an air tightness of about 12. Um, but like anything, we've got we've got a bell curve. 12, yeah, it's, it's actually quite high. <laughs> For new properties? No, no, no. Oh, no, no, oh, no. Old. Older, traditional, yeah, older ones. I was um, wondering, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 new ones. Um, hey, we've, so we've got Jeff, an average of about 12. Um, an if average of 12? Wow. 12. Jeff, Jeff, we, we, I mean, we, we were carrying our own pressure tests in the last five years. We were gobsmacked some of the pressure. I mean, I mean that's, that, that, that's, there's some going. That's a, there must be serious effort being put in to make them as leaky as possible. There, you know, <laughs> I, I, that's not uncommon in the stuff that I, that's albeit social no. reason, not uncommon at, at all. In fact, north of that, sometimes yeah. I have heard of worse results. I know of one building, an Irish air tightness tester did a larger building where I think he said that there were results in the region of 30 or 40. Yeah. <laughs> he, he had nine blower doors to try and pressurize the building, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, we, we tried to we did a blower door test on some some housing up in um Argyle. Um and yeah, we couldn't actually we couldn't fully pressurize it. The the closest we could get was an estimate of about 28. <laughs> um and the Argyle, it's it's about it's a bit chilly up there. Like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it might might be worthwhile though, Lisa, because we talk about this and that this is our game and everyone knows it. But just to clarify, because there might be a lot of people listening to this that, that don't get what we're we're talking in numbers here just now, but can you just briefly explain what when we talk about pressure testing and blower door test, what and, and, and what those numbers actually mean? Right. So so there are different types of blower door tests. Um so the one that we kind of most commonly refer to um is an air permeability test. Um and that effectively measures the volume of air that goes out of the house for every square meter of surface area, external surface area of the home um, per hour at 50 Pascal, right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to remember all the letters behind that particular, <laughs> that particular number. <laughs> um, and so basically what we do is we, yeah, we whack a fan usually in a door or a window um, with a pressure sensor on the inside and the outside of the house. Um, and we've got a little dial that turns up the, the speed of the fan that then kind of pressurizes the house or depressurizes in some cases. Um, and effectively, 
as for every 10 Pascal of pressure that we hit, uh, we take a measurement as to basically how much air movement is going through that fan. And that gives us a sense of basically, you know, basically how leaky the building is. So you can do it with that method. There's a second method that we can use, which is called the pulse test. Um, and then we use that inside. Basically, it fires a very brief pulse of air at a low pressure. Um, and that gives us a, a slightly different sense of how leaky it is. Um, so the main issue with the high pressurization tests is it can deform some of the attributes of the house that things leak through. So if you've got like uh, any kind of fluffy insulation, um, when you pressurize it, it might flatten out that insulation a little bit in the wall, which then might reduce or even increase the amount of infiltration that you've got. So you get a slightly distorted result with the high pressurization tests. Um, but basically to give you a bit of context as to what those numbers would mean. So uh, an air tightness of about five, so five cubic meters of air going through every square meter of building yeah. fabric. Yes, um, at 50 Pascal. Um, so that would be a relatively draft free house. So that would be a house that you would be, you know, fairly comfortable walking around in in the winter in your boxers and you'd be okay. Um, uh then if you talk about that that house in Argyle, um if if you were to stand around in your boxers in a house with a with an air tightness of you know upwards of 30, uh you'd be hypothermic pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the, the thing is, what what I think people probably don't understand again, the people are talking about fabric first and, and without the context of that, and that's really good. So 99% of, of the heat that we heat our homes with is we talk about radiators, but to be honest, we convect we convect air, we convect heat in the air. So we heat air in our properties. So if those properties are leaky to the extent where you're changing that air you know, 10 times, you're essentially just heating air that's going straight out there. And I think this is where I know that, you know, we don't want to be really dry and talk about building physics and all that kind of stuff, but there has to be some, I, I've been saying this for a, a while now, there has to be some, you know, understanding of, of of when we insulate homes, we have to talk about air tightness as well, because just because we insulate something doesn't necessarily mean we actually improve it to the extent. Well, this is it. I mean, I'm thinking of, um, there's also research uh, from the University of Ulster um, from a thermal comfort test rig they have there, which indicates that in a leaky building, people will feel, uh, especially if they have drafts around their ankles and so on, they'll feel a degree or two cooler than they actually are. So um, it does, thermal comfort is, is part of it. One, one thing that's fascinating as well in this area, that uh, there's, there's an assumption that underpin, um, that that's under that underpins the SAP calculations and deep similarly in Ireland um, that um, the you take the air permeability result which say it's ten if it's a bad house ten cubic meters per square hour or whatever you know uh, which wouldn't comply with regs in, in Ireland and hopefully not in, in various parts of the UK too um, um, that's divided by twenty in the calculations uh, uh, to uh, um, and convert into air changes per hour, which uh, it apparently shouldn't have been. I believe I'm, I'm told uh, that was an error uh, was made. They converted from permeability to air changes without recognizing. In other words, that, that the the assumption is that that a building with a permeability of ten will have uh, 0.5 air changes through infiltration with all your vents and stuff closed that's how much air leakage you'll get through just purely through defects in the construction um but that figure's wrong um apparently um there's there's a there's a new study there's a new study being published which uh which has taken an average results comparing pressure test results and actual um uh tracer gases in uh, tests done without in buildings with uh with no no pressurization going on um I uh, don't know exactly what witchcraft they use to do this, but um, the, the, the point is that they, th this study, which is an English study, found an average of 37 times. Uh, in other words, it was 37 times lower, the real, real world infiltration. It's really important to emphasize that this will vary enormously on a building by building yeah. cases from, from moment to moment. And certainly depending on the location, how exposed the location is, the topography of the site, uh the, the form of the building and so on you know so mm -hmm. um yeah uh, and, and and it's and it's not just about air it's about vapor too i mean this is i'm oh, sorry 
it suggests like uh, I'm thinking back to I can't remember who it was. I'm just looking at who was interviewed in the early days of the podcast. It might have been Scott McCauley or mm. Kevin Albertson who described like the houses that people lived in at the turn of the century as being akin to caves, not like yeah. ha- not like yeah, the homes yeah. that we imagine. Like you know the yeah. the four windows and the door and the picket fence and the tree and the garden. Like and surprisingly in spite of more modern methods of construction and efficiencies and economies in construction uh we haven't moved on an awful lot have we (laughs) (laughs) well you also have to think of like you know my my flat as a as a tenement in glasgow was built in 1901 um and you have to think of what were women wearing back then compared to what i wear now is i walk around in you know yoga tights and a tank top most of the time um, women back then would have been wearing yeah. multiple layer skirts, yeah. multiple shirts. They would have been like, frankly, properly covered up as opposed to me. This brings us on quite nicely because, you know, Jeff, you're absolutely right. You know, the, the construction type and the location and, and, and the orientation will, will, will have a, a huge impact on that. And when we talk about, um, you know, leaky, leaky buildings. So Lisa stays in a tenement flat and also Dan, it's just a theme that we've picked up on all week is that, so Lisa, you know, as you might imagine, staying in a, an inefficient, we can call it tenement, an efficient uh, home. She's done something about it, which I think is brilliant. But I think what is heartening is that, you, so guys like me who talk about whole house retrofit, and that's fine if you've got the budget for it, but I, I don't think you have to look at the, the, some of the stuff that Lisa's done, which hopefully you can share with us, I think shows how you can make small changes with a with a limited budget in a way that, that, that avoids the disaster. Sorry, Alex. No, sorry, I just wanted to, um, I, I've been really interested, so we've watched that, your your presentation there, and uh, when the, when Doug and sent it to me, he said, you're going to really like this because I'm absolutely fascinated by this sort of, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a newbie to it, right? So I've got this, this thing where I can be completely naive about it all. And I've been listening to this conversation up till now, and I'm thinking, gosh, this is actually really complex. It really is complex. And so looking at, your, your presentation, I was really interested because, you know, you've you clearly said you studied the physics, you understand the physics, and then you went through that presentation, you explained what you did as a homeowner, but you had that added layer of a person who actually knows what they're doing. So I was I was loving the fact that you were putting uh, further pieces of words between all the, the pieces and you were sanding them down and then you're explaining why you chose that sort of insulation for the, for the which wall in the, in the bathroom because that was the one that was getting the most humidity in, et cetera, et cetera. Most people don't actually know that. So I had a question for you, and I think we should really ask you more about what you did as well afterwards, but what is the place of the homeowner or the person living in a building in terms of retrofit? What is their place in this whole ecosystem? If the big guys are getting it wrong already, what what do we, what can we do? So I think like the role of the homeowner is, is always a bit tricky um, because you want them, you want them to be engaged. You want them to be, making the right decisions and you want them to be kind of a bit driving the process because ultimately you know construction kind of is a service industry where we're there to make the customer happy um if the customer is happy with the cheapest most rubbish thing they can possibly get that's what they're going to get um and so i think what's really important is having homeowners that are informed that are well informed that are well supported um, and that's where I think some organizations like like local homes, like uh, Carbon Co-op and, and various others, where they do spend quite a lot of time kind of educating homeowners and teaching them, this is what you need to be asking for. This is what you need to be aware of. This is what you need to be wary of. Um, because there are a lot of people out there that are, that are kind of selling snake oil um, from the industry. Um, and it is very difficult to actually weed that out. Um, and I mean, one of the things that I did when I was when I was doing my retrofit, um, as I was quite curious, because I, you know, coming from a professional background, I have an experience of professional contractors. Um, yeah. I'm not used to dealing with the one-off trade guys that operate at the back of their van because they don't tend to get on the scale of projects that I work on. Um, and I thought like, I figured the boiler swap is going to be the most straightforward thing. Um, so I, you know, basically went down the the list of people that can swap out a boiler from like energy savings trust or something. And I said, I'm, I'm going to try and take a, 
a standard customer journey through this and see what it's like. Um, and I, I feel genuinely bad for the first four guys that came around because um, <laughs> <laughs> they I, they got this phone call for, hi, I have a one bed flat and I need a new heating system. Can you come switch my boiler? And I need some new some new radiators hooked up and da, 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 da. And so the guy has come around and I'd done a little sketch of kind of where I thought the pipe should go and where the radiator should go. And, and I was trying to be naive and not, and basically not give away the fact I'm a professional engineer um, and see what happened. <laughs> and it was, it was both eye-opening and atrocious at the same time. Um, so basically I knew that like I'd done the heat loss calcs. I knew that I needed a really small boiler um, and I mean, I could have gotten away with a boiler that's about, you know, eight, 10 kilowatts tops, yeah. um, except for the fact I went for a combi so, and I had a, a bath, so I needed to slightly higher for a combi. Um, basically the smallest combi on the market is about, I think, 18, 19 yeah. kilowatts. So, 18, yeah. yeah. Um, so I knew I was going to end up with something that size or slightly bigger. And yeah, the first guy that walks in wanted to sell me a 40 kilowatt boiler. Um, and then he was saying, oh, I'll run big, you know, I'll, I'll run big 28 mil pipes all the way down to your radiators. And I'm sitting there going, that's not the most efficient way to distribute the heat. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, right, okay. So showed him the door. Um, next guy comes in. Oh, yeah, we'll do this. We'll do that. Again, you wanted to sell something. I think you wanted to sell me a 45 kilowatt boiler. Um, and I, I said, uh, I said, well, what would that cost? I just, oh, oh, it's really hard to say. It's really hard. And my flat is the easiest thing to plumb in the world. Uh, oh, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's going to be an eight or nine grand. I was like, get out, out, like now, out. <laughs> um, threw him out of the house. Um, and then, yeah, it got like three more guys around. And I'm just like, good God, like, this is just a riot. Um, and then... It was, I got quotes anywhere from about 5K to 10K, um, which is just outrageous for what it was. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Everyone trying to sell me an oversized boiler, everyone's yeah. trying to sell me stuff that I didn't need. And finally, like, basically, there was a flat across the way that was getting refurbished for a housing association. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, that's it. I've had it. And I basically took my business card, walked across the street, handed it to the guy. And I said, can you have your boss call me? I need a new heating system. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a big reveal moment, Lisa, where you where you uh, scared the the bejesus out of them and and um, and, and put, no, held them down to rights? No, no, no. So basically, like the, the kid kind of it was like a it was basically an apprentice that was there at lunchtime, and he he said, "What's going on?" I said, "I've had six guys around. They're all basically taking the mick, and I've just had enough. I need a heating system." Um, and he's like, "Right, okay." So the boss basically popped around the next day and he said, uh, and I handed him the sketch. I said, look, I want valves there, 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 run the mains this way, tee off here and here, um, put your magnetic filter here. I said, this one's going to be the research, dot, 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 dot. And he just looks at me, he goes, he goes, right. He goes, you got a price in mind. And I go, yeah, it should be about 22, 2200. He goes, yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> That's a mad thing. Yeah. <laughs> What Alex and I do for a living, like a big part of what we do is help people with website strategy. So like you want a website, you need to know what you want built or you need to know what you need to work out what you need up front, which sounds like that's exactly what you did for your yeah. heating system. You know, we'll do who are your users. What do they need? What do you need in order to meet those user needs? Like we do this whole strategy piece and often we work with agencies who don't have that in-house facility uh, and they use us because we make their jobs much easier and we make it cheaper for the client. And the agencies work we, we work with aren't trying to rip people off. Like, you know, there are agencies out there that'll just take people's money and give them a, a, a custom built CMS that is not going to last. Like there's, it's totally analogous to what you're doing. But what struck me is, is there someone in the trade who can provide the sort of service that we do, the sort of service that you did for yourself, like working out, well, this is the home, this is where the the pipe work is, this is the, this is the infrastructure. What do I actually need in order to deliver to meet my own needs as a user of my own home? 
Yeah, so that's that's definitely the retrofit coordinator role. So that was what that role was intended for, is it was about basically being being a bit of the brains of the project of saying, right, this is what this house needs. This is what's going to benefit this, this particular householder the most. So like my retrofit was really mostly focused on comfort. Um, and it was a bit on saving money on bills as and when I could, but ultimately I just wanted to be a warm in my house. Um, and so that was what I focused on is things that were going to improve the comfort the most. Um, and so I made choices that, are different to what I would have done if the goal was actually to save a lot of money on my bills. Um, and I think that's what the retrofit coordinator should be doing is they should be looking at kind of the householder's needs, um, what the actual kind of technical challenges of the house are, and then how you go about kind of marrying up the two. And I think this is where we've, we've struggled a bit with the idea of standardizing the process um, and the idea of turning this into a compliance element is because ultimately that does come down to a bit of professional judgment of, you know, you've got this particular householder, they're called in that room. Um, they have a certain lifestyle that means, you know, they're up at a certain hour, they go to bed at a certain hour. Um, I mean, when you look at people that work shifts, um, you know, sometimes they come home at six in the morning um, and they sleep all day and it's important that they can black out their rooms um, and basically get a good night's sleep in the middle of the day. Um, and there are different things that you might do to that house that you might not do to a different one. Um, and that's where standardization becomes quite tricky because like when you're designing around people, people are actually quite unpredictable and it does take a bit of nuance um, to do that well. And that's not that's not a strength of any standardized processes dealing with nuance. Like, it's just. <laughs> yeah. Users will always try and break whatever system you come yeah. up with for them. I mean, it's like design lines in architectural planning or development planning. Mm -hmm. You know, no one builds paths anymore uh, on yeah. a new housing development because it's a waste of time because uh, <laughs> people decide where they want to walk. Uh, yeah. yeah. I just want to go back because, so, I mean, that I think there's there's another episode easily in in your tenemental retro in your tenement retrofit. I thought it was brilliant, and we'll post a link on on this to uh, to the thing that you you've got. I think it's on YouTube or isn't? Uh, can't remember. Vimeo. Vimeo. Yeah, but one of the things that just struck me there as well is we primarily, in fact, we almost exclusively on this program talk about the kind of fabric, you know, the, you know, building physics fabric and so on. What what I think, and this is why I want to chat to Nathan Gambling, um, because we chatted to him, uh, Jeff, before Christmas. So he's a great, he's he's a just enormous mind. He's a plumber, heating heat engineer. He is the guy you want doing your job and he's got his own college and teaching thing. He's, uh, he's, a, he's a mind of information, a mind of information. And what he says is just what you're saying there is, he said, most gas engineers, right, are probably not um, installing what they should be, whether that's, um, whether that's, um, you know, um, intentional or, or, or incompetence or competence reasons, but the, he says the vast majority of combi systems aren't installed to the way that they should be as efficient. So there's a massive efficiency issue within gas industry. Anyway, why do we think that industry is going to install heat pumps, which are incredibly more complex to install mm -hmm. in a way that's going to get us the efficiencies we want? And I think the issue for us is we want to try and reduce, you talked in the start of the program about, about the reduction of demand, demand reduction within or the energy that we need. Um, but my concern is that we look at the silver bullet being heat pumps uh, and that we don't have an industry that's trained in a way that they should be to fit a much more complex piece of kit. Yeah, is I think there's there's definitely a big, big element of that. Um, but it's there's a there's a big skills gap. Um, there's a big awareness gap as well. Um, so even just um, so I got a wastewater heat recovery fitted on my shower, which is it's dead easy to plumb in. Uh, you just basically plumb the, the cold water line for the, the shower into this special device that basically all the wastewater from the um, from the shower drain comes out, warp preheats the cold water as it goes up to the, the thermostatic valve. Um, and this was in uh, a heating engineer with, you know, 20, 30 years experience. And it's the first time you've seen one. Um, and they just, they don't have that kind of, 
those sorts of products aren't brought down to the supply chain level and said, look, this is what you this is what you can be installing, this is what you can be offering people. So there's a big gap between what's out there, what can be provided, and what the guys on site or the guys on on the ground in the vans are used to actually putting in. Um, they don't always have a, a full view of what's out there. But you've got that supply deficit and a demand deficit hmm. and an education deficit. And where regulations are coming in, there's a deficit in uh, following up on whether they're actually applied properly. As we were talking about uh, the 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 I don't know the the failures in the the fabric first, yeah. or the there is no budget allocated to uh, the authorities checking mm-hmm. up. So regulations mm-hmm. are put in place. Fabric uh, fabric materials are tested. But they can be put in in a really shoddy manner That's a good point. Uh, yeah. as a well. Point. Yeah, like yeah. It's, it's all of these things. Like yeah. it's this whole ecosystem of poorly serving consumers. Uh, yeah. Because uh, there's no pride in work anymore. There's rarely pride in work anymore. There's loads of pride in profit. But yeah, well, this was this was a bit of a culture shock for me when I came over from the states. So, like in the states, we still have building inspectors that deal with everything. Um, and they're they're quite a strong authority. Um, so you put in for, I mean, my dad put in for a building warrant to just put um, put a window. With, he's got a kind of sloping property with a, a basement that's partly exposed. So basically, you could build extend down into the basement. And he wanted to put a window in the basement so that there was a bit of daylight in there. Uh, so we got a little, you know, building warrant and everything to put a wee window in. Um, and six months later, building inspector knocked on the front door. Can I see the window? Wow. Um, and I and I was like, really? I've yeah. I've never seen that in the UK. <laughs> you can't imagine such a thing no. happening, can you? No, absolutely yeah. not. And he, he knocked on the window. He said, "Can I see the window?" Uh, or knocked on the door. Can I see the window? And my dad took him downstairs. He said, "Look," he said, "I just haven't gotten around to it. Like the building yeah. warrant was good for eighteen months." Um, and the guy said, "Okay, that's not a problem. Here's my card. Give me a ring when you get it done, um, and I'll come have a look." And this was just for installing a window in a in a timber frame house. Um, and I'm sitting there going, like, I can, I can, I mean, that that retrofit that I looked over that, that went really wrong. Yeah. I said, who's in charge of this? Um, where's the architect? Where's the engineer? Which professional instructed this? No one put their hand up. But I said, where's your building inspector? Oh, they yeah. don't come around. And I'm sitting, you just retrofitted 250 houses. Yeah. And you have no one overseeing this. And I'm just, I was like, how? I was like, this would, like, you'd be, you'd be in jail if you tried to do this in the States. Um, and that was, that was an absolute shock. So I was, I was like, there must be an architect somewhere. No, there's no architects. Like, <laughs> again, I think this goes back. So, Jimmy, Jeff makes a point about the, even the threat of, of certification or the threat of, um, of, of compliance through, um, through an audit is, is enough to make people, you know, a bit more honest. But, but I think, um, uh, you know, the, the issue, um, about those particular jobs is ha- again going back to the question I said earlier. I think we have probably um, uh, seen BBAs and, and the building warrant process as the definition of good standard. When the reality is, it's minimal standard, really at best. You know. Yeah, and I mean, even um, we used to in the US, we used to have to go through and sit down with the fire department whenever we did something new, um, and even if it was a substantial refurbishment. Um, of anything more than a than a two family house, so three family and above, um, you had to sit down with the with fire fire chief, and you had to show them these are the materials we're putting on. This is how they're going together. This is how the the stairs will be. Uh, these are the routes of escape. These are the way the windows will be designed. Um, and basically, he'd look at it and he'd be like, "I can't get someone out of that top floor." He said, "You need to change those windows. Uh, that material burns way too fast. Can't use it. Don't want it in a house." Um, and it was basically, yeah, it was the fire department that ended up having a lot of say over what you could and couldn't do in a building. And basically, yeah, if the fire chief goes, you know, not safe, yeah. then okay, we change it. That's, that's, that's great, but I'm, I'm a bit wary of such an approach as well. Um, you know, I'm just, um, we, we, we are in a position where we need to see innovation we need to see decarbonization of of not just the buildings and operation but of 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 the process of constructing them as well mm-hmm. and like 
to me, there's a term that that I use for to describe the construction industry's approach to, I guess, to building physics in general. It's kind of dumb empiricism. Mm. You know, we build buildings in a certain way. Um, the ones that don't catch fire or collapse are the ones that we keep on building. And we don't know why they didn't catch fire really, or, or didn't collapse, but we, but we keep building them, you know? And, um, and it just feels to me like there's got to be, we, we need to have a much better understanding uh, of building physics, including, you know, great having, having engagement from people, you know, having absolutely serious engagement on issues like fire uh, up front, that has to happen. But uh, but it has to be done in a way where, 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 without enabling manufacturers to game the the testing process and so on, you know, we we have to be able, to, we have to have a kind of a, a approach that's rooted in 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 a really good understanding of of the scientific basis for this stuff, you know. Um, and we just, uh, it's, I don't know what the answer is though. It's it's just the same old thing you have uh, that this recurring nightmare I have these days, where where uh, where you're thinking, you know. Uh, you were when you were a kid, you think there's grown-ups in charge, whether it's in government or 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 your parents or whomever, and then you realize when you grow up that actually no. Uh, <laughs> complete maybe, mess. Maybe that's the I mean we have to wrap we've taken enough of your time, so we have to wrap up. But maybe that's the question to Lisa when we're saying well, you know what I, I don't know, I felt the last two weeks has been quite difficult. Some of the meetings I've been involved in, some of the things I've seen, I'm I'm not sure but it's an advanced stage we need to be. So I'm, I'm feeling a bit kind of uh um, trying to look for some hope. What 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 can we do? I mean, from from your perspective, what's one of the solutions that we can do that we can all do? I mean, I think the stuff you've done in the tenement is brilliant. I think we need to show people that. But if you had one wish, if you had one option, one thing we could do, what would it be, Lisa? How do we make things better? Um, <laughs> is a you might need a lamp and three yeah. of them. <laughs> 86 86ing the Tories. Like, <laughs> well, on the positive, on the positive, Jeff hasn't I, mentioned. I feel like that would solve a lot yeah. of the problems at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> if we could basically just clean out Parliament and pe- put people in place that actually give a damn, it would really help. <laughs> yeah, preempting Jeff and his, yeah. his Tory whimsy, yeah. but that is a regular feature of the the podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it's not just uh, the Tories though, like Labour. Yeah. Uh, they weren't yeah. great. They were far from it. I and think. Well, it, it's a very it, good point. Well, yeah. just, just, yeah. The, the thing is, like, we've got loads of excellent regulations in place, hmm. but the sweet FA invested in following up and ensuring that they're met properly. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, there's loads of great products out there, but they're not deployed appropriately. And there's loads of experts. They're not consulted. Like, mm-hmm. we're just not doing good work yeah. by and yeah. large. Uh, like I live in a, a 70s build, which I was talking with my property manager and he was just slagging off what a state it is because that was how it was built at the time. Mm. And now, uh, yeah, times have moved on and the building's the same building. And I'm trying to see if I could turn this into a retrofit project. So I'm, I'm going to tell you my wish, Lisa. I'm going to, I'm going to say if I, if I had my way and if I had to pick the cabinet out of Lisa as the Minister for Post-Occupancy Evaluation, I think she should have a, a crack team out there. <laughs> But I think, I think, you know, half in Jess Phil and Ernest, they're the thinking lies part of the issue. And we've talked about this a number of times in the board is that we don't invest the time, just what Jeff's saying, to understand what works, what doesn't, how to make it better and refine that process in a way that gets to something that's continually improving or continually better. So there you go, Lisa, you're in my cabinet. Not that I'm going to stand for office. But. <laughs> I think if you had more people like Lisa involved in these projects at the start, yeah. specking it out, Good and then obviously the follow up. You know, Alex and I pride ourselves on making life easier for people who are developing marketing and corporate websites and yeah. blah, blah, blah. And we know we make a difference, but it's a much easier difference to make because it's just a bloody website. Yeah. <laughs> <Like>, <laughs> they're much easier to build than a 16-story building. Yeah. And I mean, I think that was that was one of the is one of the frustrating things about my job is kind of um, I mean, construction projects can take years. Um, from the time that they're, they're created as an idea to the point that they're actually completed. Um, so by the time you've actually finished something that you thought up three years ago, like, well, the thinking is now moved on. Um, so, okay, you take some lessons learned from that, but are they really relevant anymore? Because yeah. you, know, you do things a different way. And this is this is one of the things that I struggle with a bit when it comes to the, the idea of innovation. So innovation is 
is fine to an extent. Um, what I find a lot of times is people are changing out is basically my, my theory is I'd rather have invention, which is invention is a solution to a given problem. What I find with innovation is it's difference for the sake of difference, is doing things differently because you didn't do it that way before. It's not necessarily solving a problem because in order to solve a problem, you need evidence that there was a problem to begin with. Um, and that's where I see a lot of in quote unquote innovations going wrong is they created a solution, but they didn't actually verify there was a problem that they were fixing to begin with. Um, yeah. Innovation's <laughs> a way to charge more for resolving the same issue. What's yeah. that? Like, innovation's a way to charge more for resolving the same issue. Often. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you, it's, you see I mean, that. I, yeah, we, I have seen, I have seen, quote unquote, innovations pre going. That's not actually a problem. <laughs> oh yeah, fair play. Yeah, just a this, way to charge more then. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, we're we're going to have to wrap up just now. I've got I've got a young uh, a, a young architect in, in waiting here beside me, but I think we can call this pod whatever we want. I think we should call this um, uh, Lisa Pasquale, Minister for um, Post Office Evaluation. <laughs> we should we should go with that. <laughs> but, but Lisa, it's been it's been a pleasure. Listen, thanks thanks so much for coming on, and um, I really appreciate it. Great. So it was good meeting you all. Yeah, you too. It's been brilliant. I'm sure we'll see you again. <laughs>